0: Skip Thanksgiving. You actually want to give thanks and, and be a part of that. And you're a part of this resistance movement. You, let, it, it might, you might even be a little resistant against, you know, there's, there's all the lights are beautiful and Santa Claus is coming to town and all that stuff. But there's something inside of you that, that's still holding out. That's saying there's something deeper, there's something richer, and everything is celebrated in its time, and you're holding it back. You know, you're like, you're giving it the stiff arm, and, and you're a part of the resistance movement. The materialism, the secularism of all the stuff around Christmas, you're still holding it at bay. And you're trying, well, there, I have good news for you today. The war that you fight around around the resistance is not just a war of resistance, it's also a war of restoration, Okay, We're not just resisting against a world that comes against and tries to, to minimize the, the name of Christ or tries to, to invade with materialism. There's also a restoration movement that takes the beauty of Christmas, the beauty of Christ's invasion of this earth, and it goes to restore all that's around us. And so what happens here on December 1st this year, four weeks before Christmas, is that you're officially given permission to not resist, but to engage, okay? Because when we look at Christmas, there is something of massive value to engage. You know, this is this is a beautiful, beautiful moment. See, the, the war that we fight, and we are a part of a war. You know, you, you realize in Revelation, there's this picture of Christmas in the book of Revelation. You ever notice that when the, the woman's giving birth to a child, and there's a dragon coming to eat the child? It's messed up. You know, it's a picture of Christmas, though, because the enemy is coming to steal the birth of what it is that God's trying to do. And in the midst of that is this picture of Christmas, and Christmas is a time of war. It's a time as the, the king is invading, and he's coming to build and establish his kingdom, and the enemy is trying to, to disrupt that, and the, and the dragon is trying to, to steal the child. And Christmas is still a time of war. It's still a time of war where the materialism and all that stuff that tries to grip our hearts, you know, comes after us. But the funny thing is, is the war that we fight, it's not a war against society. It's not a war against Santa Claus, you know. It's not a war against good Christmas spirit. The, the war, of course, is a war that's not, not only just against the enemy. It's a war that's internal. Because, you know, when God created mankind and put mankind in the middle of the garden, he said that we're called to rule over the earth. And we don't have the ability to rule over the earth on our own. We're worshipful beings who channel the power of God. And yet in the garden, we had to make decisions about whose power we would channel and whose voice we would listen to. And the war is one that wages within us. It's, it's a part of our hearts and our minds that says, I'm either going to yearn for the things that Satan's offering or I'm going to yearn for God. I'm either going to think the way that Satan's asking me to think or I'm going to think the way that God's asking me to think. And so the war is a war over my heart and my mind, you know? And, and the, the scary part about that, obviously, is it's not just that Satan's a formidable foe because God is so much greater than Satan. It's not, that's not worth worrying about. What's worth worrying about is that I can't trust myself to make the right decision because underneath of it all, I actually want what Satan's selling, You know, I mean, right. Don't we don't we want it? I mean, aren't we easily deceived? He is a good deceiver. But the reason he's such a good deceiver is because we also enjoy being deceived. You know, Uh, we want things that we shouldn't want. And therefore, we enjoy being deceived because it justifies things that we actually won. And in the end, it always bites us, and it always separates us from the goodness that God has to offer us. And so we actually wage this war because we trust Jesus. You know, we're we're trying to trust God the way we're supposed to. But the problem is this war, it can't be won just internally. I'm not strong enough to win the battles in my mind or the battles over my heart. I can't change that stuff. And so what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a savior. I'm looking for a king. I'm looking for a champion who comes and wins the war on my behalf. So this war that we're fighting, you know, we celebrate it. And we celebrate the victory. When do we celebrate the victory of this war? On Easter. Okay, and we take all of Lent to prepare for Easter. To think through all the implications of Good Friday and Easter so Holy Week we take all that time to prepare for it so in in America we celebrate a day of, of victory of coming out of, of being on our own and that's called Fourth of July it's the big day of independence but in the Christian world our day of dependence is Easter okay and so the big holiday is 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 uh, Easter for the Christian world for those of us who trust in Christ in the kingdom of God however, In America, there is also this day when we celebrate those leaders who helped bring us independence, and we call that President's Day. And we celebrate their birthdays and all of that. And in the kingdom of God, we celebrate when our king was born. We celebrate when our champion came. And and we celebrate that birthday, and we call that Christmas. And we take four weeks to prepare for that and to celebrate that. You know, Jen has a birthday tomorrow. And I have a birthday at the end of the month, and we have not taken four weeks to plummet the depths of how awesome each of us are and and all of that for a birthday, because we are not the champions of our own souls, you know, or of anyone else's. And uh, and yet Jesus is a king. And and we don't have a national holiday for everyone's birthday, but we do for President's Day, you know, because there's something special there. And we have a birthday, we celebrate Jesus on Christmas. And these four weeks of Advent, what we do is we get ourselves to a place where we comprehend just how awesome this is. You know, and uh, there's there's something about the routine of Christmas that's both the routine of Advent and Christmas. That's both awesome and dangerous, you know, just like any routine. Have you ever gotten something, a gift that was given to you or or, or um uh, you went out and bought a device? Maybe it's a phone or uh, a computer or some sort of technology. And you never learn to um all the all the different things that it could do. You know, you, it's like uh, you use your computer for word processing you know, to type a document or to shoot an email, but the computer could do like millions of things, but you don't learn all that's available in it. Right. And maybe some things in it could actually make my life easier if I knew, but I've never taken the time. And once I use that computer for like a year and I've used it every day, well, I'm never going to learn all the other stuff that it does at that point, you know? And there's this thing about, about, Christmas and about Easter where you read, you know, in the days of Caesar Augustus and the angels came and said, glory to God in the highest. And the words, they continue to wash over us year after year. And the good thing about routine is that it keeps us connected to it. It's like if I, if I exercise every day, well, now I'm in the rhythm and I just do it, but I might run the same track every day and miss the beauty that's around me because I'm so used to running it. And when it comes to the Christmas story, when it comes to Easter, it, it takes a lot of intention to unpack what's actually underneath the Christmas story. It takes a lot of intention for us to not just let it blow past us and be like, yes, the manger, the child, it's beautiful, but to really grab a hold of this gift that's been given to us. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, Jesus is a gift that's given to us. And the details of who Jesus is and how he's given, it it just keeps giving. I mean, as much as, as my, my iPhone or my computer has all sorts of things under all sorts of things it can do that I might not realize, Jesus has the capacity to do spectacular things in our lives. But oftentimes most of the potential of this gift goes unrealized because we don't unpack the depth of what all is available. And so what we're doing in Advent this year is we're going to try to unpack some of the names, some of the titles of Jesus, because when when the names are given, it's like this is like, you know, if I if I have my phone, I could call it a phone. And then you just think that all this is is something for calling people, you know, but it could also be called an alarm Because it's an alarm. It could also be called a computer. It could be called an address book. It could be called a calendar. It could be called a camera. It could be called a you name it. Just keep naming it and naming it. The thing has so many names and titles. And when I look at all the names and titles that it could be called, I realize that all that can happen in that thing. And with Jesus, the names just keep going and going and going. And all of those things are things that are available and afforded to us in this little child that's been given. And so we have four weeks, and we're only going to unpack four of... Of those names, four of those titles. That's it. But there's so much more. And I'd encourage you to just keep reading the story and look for names and look for titles and, and then do your own research in there, you know. And so today what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the king. Because in this war that, that's in my mind and in my heart, this war not just of the resistance against a world that seems to be in charge, but a restoration of a kingdom that's much bigger than the world that we can see, we need the king. And we celebrate on Christmas that the warrior king is here. That he showed up. That what has been prophesied from long ago has been born among us. And that this thing, we're going to win. He's going to win. We have a winning king. All right, so with that said, Matthew chapter 2 kicks us off today, kicks our series off. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. I'm going to have you stand with me in honor of God's word, please. Plus, you can stretch your legs. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is given, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will say, who will shepherd my people, Israel. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. May God add rich blessings to the reading of his word. Have a seat, please. Let's pray. Again, I want to pray one more time here. God, this service is wrapped in prayer, but in this moment, we just want to say that if you are a king, God, and, and we believe that your word says you are, then today, God, help us to understand the implications of that and the benefits and the gift of that to us, truly, God. Help us to understand and to receive the kingship. In Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this is like the story of Jesus as a king is one of those things that uh, there's some things you just don't say about a person. Everyone just knows them and understands it. Like if you played for the Chicago Bulls back in the day, there was this guy who was on your team and his name was Michael Jordan and all the guys didn't go around saying to him, "Hey Michael Jordan, you're a superstar." Everybody knew that he was the definition of a superstar. But the teammates just learned to play with the guy, right? It's Michael Jordan. His name became equivalent. It defined superstar. Right? So there's this title, superstar, but it's it's not like Scottie Pippen was saying to Michael Jordan, Hey you're a superstar, we gotta figure out how to play with the superstar. No, it was just this is Jordan and he's amazing and everyone knew it. When it came to the word king, it's so so rare across the pages of scripture that the word king is used to describe the Messiah. It's funny when you go to research the word king in scripture, it's used of people all the time. But when it comes to Jesus, that word isn't used very often. It's just understood. You notice that when the wise men came to Herod, they said, we saw a star in the sky. And from where we're coming from, that means that there's a king, you know. And so there are these astrologers, you know, and they see, they read the stars and they see that there's a new king and somehow they know it's king of Judea. I don't know how any of that works. Don't ask me. I'm not an astronomer or an astrologer or any of that. But somehow from the stars, they knew that there was this king who was coming, okay? And they're like, there's this king. And so they come and they say, where's the king? And then the response to that is Herod goes and he assembles all the religious people so they can search the scriptures to look for who? Not the king, but the Christ, the Messiah. So Messiah is another word that we're going to unpack. But here's the point. The point is, is that when people heard Messiah, they just assumed that that meant king. Even though when you go back and look at the Old Testament and look at all the messianic prophecies, rarely, if ever, does it use the word king to describe him. It's just that everything it says assumes that he is king. So, for instance, one of the greatest prophecies that you know of about Christmas is found in Isaiah chapter 9. It starts in verse 6 and goes to verse 7, and it says, For unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Okay, so the, that means that this is a governing figure. Okay, so the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, so there's another kind of political term. And then it says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Okay, so notice nowhere in there does it say king. It says prince. In other prophecies, like in, in Zechariah where it talks about him being a priest, it also refers to him as a ruler. You know? And and even here when it says, Oh you Bethlehem of Judea are not least among the rulers, for out of you will come a ruler. So it talks about ruler, it talks about prince, it talks about the government sitting on his shoulders, you know, but rarely does it actually use the word king. And that's like, you don't need to use the word superstar about, about Michael Jordan. You don't need to use the word basketball player about Michael Jordan either, you know? And when you talk about the Messiah, of course, you don't need to use the word king because Everyone knows that's what it's about. He comes in the line of David. That's who he's supposed to be, is sitting in the seat of David upon his throne. Everyone gets that. So when the Messiah is showing up, and we'll get into Messiah later on in the series, but when he shows up, it's assumed that it's king, and there's no question about it, which is why Herod reacts, doesn't he? And how does he react? He reacts in fear, because a king knows that if another king's coming to town, there's only room for one king up in here. You know, and so that what does that mean? It means that there's going to be a conflict and I'm going to have to give up my throne, especially if it's the king of kings, if it's the Messiah, the superstar king, you know. Of course, the foreigners who come from outside, they name it, which is always the way it is when there's a culture and in the culture, everything's assumed. It's always someone from outside who's able to name the obvious thing that's unspoken, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, king of the Jews. Where's this? And everyone's like, you know, and and flips out and they come, Very appropriately in dealing with the king, they come to give worship to the king. Now, worship isn't, we always think of worship in terms of worshiping a god, but worship means giving worth to. And so, if this king is coming, then they're coming to offer their gifts to the king, which is a very appropriate thing without them necessarily knowing that this is a son of God. What they recognize is this is a king and a great king. It's written in the stars. You know, And so they come and bring their gifts to this king. Kind of a beautiful picture of gift-giving. And hopefully for Christmas, for us, a huge part of gift-giving has to do with this picture of us bringing our gift to Christ, where I'm not the king, I'm not the celebration. He's the gift, and he's also the one that we give to. And we celebrate and receive the gift of Christ, and we give the gifts to Christ as well. And that's the picture of them. And all across the storyline of Christ, of Jesus, There's this thing, there's this underlying elephant in the room, in the storyline of Jesus, that he's a king. And rarely is it talked about. It's talked about real briefly here in the beginning in Matthew chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 1 where it gives the lineage and says that he's from the line of David. And then when you get to the end of Jesus' life, it'll show up again. But in the middle, there's really only two spots that, that, they, uh, that you actually hear the term king. One is when there's this guy, Nathaniel, who gets called to be one of his apostles. And uh, Philip, his buddy, comes and says, hey, I met the Messiah. you got to come meet him. And so he brings him to Jesus. And, and he's trying to figure out how he knows this is really the Messiah. And then Jesus tells him where he was when he heard about the Messiah sitting under this tree. And he flips out. And he's like, how would you know that? And he freaks out. And he says, you are the king of Israel. That's what he calls him. And Jesus kind of like chuckles and he's like, you were impressed with that? Wait, do you see what you're going to see over the next three years? You know, and it's this great moment. You know, the other time you hear the word king is Jesus does this spectacular thing where he feeds the 5,000. And afterwards, the people are so excited that they grab a hold of Jesus because they realize at this point, this is the one. This is the chosen one. He's giving manna to his people. He's the, he's the prophet. He's the priest. And therefore, we have to make him the king. And they try to force him into being king. And Jesus eludes them because just like when we just got finished this David series, and remember they came to him in Hebron and they made him king over Israel. And this is what they're trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to make him and establish him to be king. But Jesus pushes that away because the kind of kingdom that they understand obviously isn't the kind of kingdom that he's trying to establish. And so he has to escape their picture of what a king is. And Jesus, they always try to get him to name that he's the king. Everyone's always trying to get him to name that, and he won't. And he resists any position, and he resists all of it because their preconceived ideas of the kind of king he is are wrong. And then there's this moment, okay, where finally the elephant comes out of the No, sorry. The elephant doesn't come out of the bag. The cat comes out of the bag. The elephant's in the room, but the cat came out of the bag. Okay. And I don't know what happened between the cat and the elephant at that point. What I do know is that in Revelation chapter 21, something, or in, I'm sorry, in in Matthew chapter 21, something starts. Jesus fulfills a very specific prophecy where their king will come riding to them on a donkey into Jerusalem. Instead of on a war horse. And he comes to bring peace. And so John and Luke's rendition of this story. Talk about the people saying either. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. And they name him as king. Because they recognize There he is, riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. That prophecy was specifically about the king. Here comes the king. We can read the signs, and they start waving their palm branches and giving him worship. For the next week of his life, what we celebrate in the big holiday in Easter, we see Jesus living in a way that reveals his kingdom in this whole other way. Okay, And something happens throughout that week, and by the end of the week, It has become so clear the claims that he is king without him verbalizing that he's king. They can nail him down now and say, this guy believes that he's a king. And so they go, they take him to Pilate and they say to Pilate, this guy claims to be a king. And we don't believe in any king, but the king of Caesar. Okay. And in that moment, of course, Pilate takes him and he starts to question him. And it's all about whether or not he's a king. We'll get to that in a minute. We know that Pilate sentences him to death. And as he's hanging on the cross, there's a sign above his head that reads what? King of the Jews. And this term king starts coming up like crazy in the 27th chapter. What happens is there's people all underneath of him staring up at the cross. And this is what they say to him. You say that you're king of the Jews and that you can save all of us. But if you're really king of the Jews, then come and save yourself. And they mock him as king. And there's a purple robe that was put on him and a crown of thorns that was put on him. And they bow down and they they fake worship him. They hit him and they say, prophesy, prophet. Oh, you're the great king, you know. And they just make fun of him. And it's all about him being a king. They say, you're no king, you're a joke but there's a guy hanging on a cross next to him. And what does he ask of Jesus? Jesus, remember me when you come into your... Amen. Somebody saw who was really a king. Somebody had eyes of faith to see that this man was truly a king and that there was truly a kingdom. And that the material world that was pressing against their heart was full of garbage and it was the deception of the enemy and that underneath of it all was a real king who was building a real kingdom and who was winning a real war on that day. And someone realized it. And they were a part not only of a resistance movement but of a restoration movement because this king was doing some great work when no one else was watching. Turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 to 16, we're told exactly how we're to respond, what the implications are of Christ the King. Verse 12 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, it says this, fight the good fight of faith. Remember, we're in a war. Fight the good fight of faith Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's saying, remember, you stood in front of your brothers and sisters, and you made a confession of faith. You believed that there was a life that was not just a temporal life, not just a material life, not just a physical life, but you believe in a greater life, a spiritual life, an eternal life, and you made confession in front of everyone else. So now when the material world presses into you, fight the good Fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. Believe in it. Live in it. You know, you made that confession. Now live in it. Verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. Hold on to this right here. Who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What confession did he make before Pontius Pilate? What confession did he make before Pontius Pilate? That he was a king. That's the confession he made. Pilate asks him, point blank, are you a king? And at first there's a little hedging and there's like, you know, and and he stays, first he stays silent, you know, and, and Pilate's like, do you not realize that I have the power to destroy you or whatever? And he's like, you don't have any power unless it was given to you by my father in heaven. You got no power. I got the power. You know, this is how this works. My dad's got the power. I'm the prince. You know, I'm the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I got. We got all the power wrapped up, so you have no power unless my dad gives it to you. In other words, I have power over you right here, right now. And Pilate gets in check in some ways pretty quick, you know. And Jesus says to him, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. By saying my kingdom, he's confessing that he's a king. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my father would have dispatched all the angels and we'd be done with all these shenanigans, you know. But my kingdom is not of this world and we're still working on fighting this war. And Pilate responds by saying, oh, so you are a king then. And he says, look, you say that I'm a king. And what he's saying by that is, you have a picture in your mind of what the king is. And he says, but for this purpose I have come to testify to the truth. In other words, this false world that you live in and this false picture of a king that you think you are, Pilate, and that you think a king is, I'm coming to testify to the truth about what a king actually looks like and what a kingdom really is. And then Pilate says, what is truth? And we all laugh because truth was standing in front of him and the king was standing in front of him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. If we understand what Paul says to Timothy, he says that we are to hold on. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, hold on to the truth that Christ revealed in that moment. That is the fight of faith that we fight. Hold on to the truth of this eternal life, of this spiritual kingdom, of Jesus as the King. Hold on to that until Jesus reveals himself more fully. And then in verse 15, which will display, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. That's how you respond to that. Amen. Yeah, when you, when you hear that, King of kings, Lord of lords, Amen. We join the wise men, we fall on our faces, and we say, Amen. Let me make the good confession of faith as well in front of my brothers and sisters. I was in the uh, car while I was thinking through this message, and the boys were with me. We were, we were it was uh, Thanksgiving, I think it was either Thanksgiving or, or on Friday. Um, and I asked the boys, I said, hey, you know, Evan in social studies right now, uh, he's in third grade, and in social studies right now, he's learning about the different branches of the U.S. government. And uh, I said, hey, bud, um, what do you think if we had a king instead of the kind of government we have, uh, what, would you, what do you think about that? Would that be cool if we had a king in America, a king over America? And he's like, um, I guess it really depends on who the king is. Hmm, good answer, isn't it? You know, because monarchy all depends on that person. It's all about that person, which is, of course, the terrible tragedy about many, many monarchies is that there are men. Who are the kings? And we all know about men and women because we are them. And so we know the problems that are inherent within them. But there have been some kings who have been incredible ones, namely one who we just studied about for the last however many weeks when dealing with King David, you know? What makes a good king? Courage. What makes a good king? Bravery and courage. Love for the people. Wisdom. Humility. Jesus is born in a manger. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Jesus is wise to know how to win the war when Peter is trying to get him to do this or the people are trying to crown him to be king and instead of falling prey to the pressures to go according to human wisdom, Jesus knows better how to free us. Love. His blood poured out on a cross for his people. Jesus obviously, clearly, is the King of Kings not only because he's God, but because he's literally the King of Kings. Like he is the superstar king. You know, this isn't only because, by definition, because he's God, but it's because his courage, his character, his love, his humility is not known to men outside of him, you know? And he is truly The picture of king. And if Jesus is our king, then there is something worth celebrating. I don't want a judicial branch and an executive branch and a legislative branch if I can have Jesus. You know, if all I need is Jesus, if I can have Jesus. Short of Jesus, yeah, we got to figure all sorts of stuff out, don't we? But if we have Jesus, all I want is a monarchy. And I want him to be king of everything. And what are the implications of having a king that's this good? See, here's where we begin to unwrap the Christmas present, where we unpack the birth of this child, where we take the name king and we say, what does it offer us? And there's two things in particular that I want to highlight that Jesus as king affords us. First of all, it means this, that Jesus himself, king of kings, lord of lords, will protect me from my enemies. That I have a king who will protect me from the enemy. And you can't always count on kings like this because, you know, kings, they're a little shady when they have their own fear. Because they tend to be controlling. Kings can get really controlling and it can be all about protecting their own assets, you know. And their own resources, and so they can end up warring against their their own vassals in order to protect their own things. And they can become oppressive, you know. And they can they, they they're in that human power and control thing where government can be just about human control because of fear. I have a, a buddy who's a, a a videographer and a filmmaker, and uh, he gets to do all sorts of crazy cool stuff. But one of the things that he was assigned to was uh, he had a, a job where he was flying with uh, Hillary Clinton as she was secretary of state, going to, to all these different countries and filming her on the on the plane, you know, and then and then as she's engaging people and all that. And at one point they were in Karachi, which is the capital of anybody know where Pakistan, thank you, which is an extremely safe place if you're an American, and uh, when I he, he's in the middle of Pakistan, and here he is in the middle of Pakistan, and he's filming this whole thing, and there's this caravan, and they're driving down a, a street in Karachi, and they he's in the back seat of this one car, this armored car, there's a bunch of armored cars around, and there's they have surveillance all over the place, but they have to stop in the middle of the city, and they're getting out to make some statement, or, or whatever, and as they, they're going to get out of the car, he looks over at the one Secret Service agent and he says you know I feel a little uncomfortable here in Karachi and, and he's like I, I'm just are we safe and the guy takes him out and he takes him around to the back of the car and he opens the trunk of the car and when he opens the trunk of the car it was like comes out and there's this weaponry that was like insane weaponry. He's like, I've never seen anything like this in my life. It was like, you know, this guy was ready to fight a war. And there was all these people all around this perimeter around us and there's surveillance everywhere. And the guy looks at him and he put his arm on him and he said, you're safer with me right now than you would be if you were standing in front of the white house. You know, I don't know if that's actually true. However, what I do know is this, if you have enough power that no matter where you go, there is a certain measure of safety. Okay, and, and the weapons of our warfare that are carnal, the, the weapons of this world that are carnal can protect you to a certain degree if you have a big amount of weaponry that takes you wherever. But the weapons that are ours, not of this earth, they are not carnal. And they are mighty to what? The scriptures say, to the tearing down of strongholds what does that mean that these are not just defensive weapons these are offensive weapons which means my safety in christ is not found in hauling up in a corner and building a wall around me and saying jesus can protect me over here because we have big walls that keep us from the world it says this isn't just a resistance movement this is a restoration movement and i can go with jesus and i can go into any situation that he calls me to And I can have great freedom and I can have great courage because Christ goes with me. And the power of Christ cannot be quenched and the light of Christ cannot be extinguished because light is more bright than darkness and love conquers all. And the increase of his government and of his peace will know no end. And it continues to expand. So what does that mean? That means when I face death, I'm not afraid because Jesus conquers death. The greatest of all the enemies. So what am I worried about? Do I have to haul up in a corner and say, I'm a Christian, the world's coming to get me. No. I stand in the power of Christ and I walk in full love, in full hope, in full grace and peace. And we look at people around us who are caught up in the deception of the enemy. And we say, love is going to conquer the darkness in your heart. And the peace of Christ can rule in your family. And the love of God that I've experienced has the power to set you free. And the truth that He speaks brings freedom. And I'm going to bring it with me. And I will not hide, but I will shout it from the mountaintops. And I will proclaim it to the masses that Jesus is King. And He will keep me safe all the way through because He is my security. The freedom that's found in the security of Jesus is a freedom that doesn't mean we run and hide. It means it's a freedom that we release our own control and needing to to set up the wall around our own circumstances. And instead, we have great courage to tackle this life with freedom and with courage. Secondly, the other thing that he gives us is this. Not only does he protect us from the enemy because the power is bigger than myself. It's as big as his kingdom. He also protects me from myself. Because we realize that our greatest enemy oftentimes is ourselves, right? Because the sin that lurks in our hearts, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. And that our minds play tricks and there's high mind control and we're given over to the depravity and all of that. And so we're to take every thought into captivity and have our minds washed by the renewing of the word. And so it's his word that becomes the definition You see, there's this thing in our world right now that's so, so very difficult to beat in our minds. And it's this, it's that when it comes to how we live our lives, that we are king, that we are the ones who decide what is right for us. And yeah, you have to play ball with the government and all of that, but, but within our world that we determine based on how we feel or what we think, we determine what is right and wrong. And one person says this and one person says that and we reason with each other and we might say, well, that's good for you if that works for you and this is good for you. And all of that just leads us to a place where we're going to get completely deceived and we're going to get our lunch eaten and it's never going to work because the enemy is so much stronger than us and so much smarter than us and cunning and he knows how to exploit our hearts and our minds and I'll win every time. But the thing is, is I have a king and I don't have to set the rules for this kingdom. He's already set the rules. Okay, And the kingdom is much bigger than my own mind and my own wisdom. This kingdom is built upon a king whose wisdom no one else can possibly comprehend. He sees it all. And when I go into war, I don't have to worry about getting deceived and I don't have to worry about whether my allegiance is here or there, whether my mind can see clearly. It doesn't matter because there's a commander who sees the whole battlefield and there's a king who establishes laws that are much bigger than my mind can, can comprehend. And my job doesn't have to be to be smart to figure out this life. My job is just simply to be obedient and let him be king. What a level of freedom it is. When not only do I not have to control my circumstances because he'll protect me from the enemy, but I don't even have to figure out what's right and wrong. I just have to listen to the commands of the king. And then I'm not only now in control of making sure I'm safe, but I'm also not in control of making sure I'm righteous or right. I can trust him with my safety and security, and I can trust him with safety from my own self-deception. Man, it's a beautiful thing a beautiful, beautiful thing. In order to live in this kingdom, in order to receive this kingdom, Timothy says that we have to, or Paul says to Timothy here, that we have to receive it by faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Remember, you have announced this to everyone, that this kingdom that can't be seen, never has been seen or will be seen with these eyes, it won't be seen with these eyes. Jesus as king, when he walked on earth, was not seen with these eyes. You remember, he says, blessed are you, Simon, because what has been revealed to you was not revealed to you. When he claimed that Jesus was the Christ, he says, he says, this was not revealed to you by men, but was revealed to you by God. And he says to Thomas, who does see the, the handprints here, he says, oh, that's great that you see, believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who see, or who believe when they haven't seen. Because faith is about the essence of things that are hoped for, the presence of things that are unseen. And so what he says is, is that the things that you're not seeing, that confession that you've made about the things that you don't see, that kingdom, hold on, fight for those things. And so if we want to receive God's protection for us from the enemy and God's protection for us from ourselves, God's law that's bigger than us, God's wisdom that's bigger than us, and God's weaponry, God's power that's bigger than us, we, have, we can only receive it by faith. And, and there's two reasons for that the, the first reason is that it's invisible and it's beyond our minds to comprehend. So we simply have to read about it and then we have to believe it. And for all you brainomaniacs, I know you guys are super smart. We're all super smart in this room. And for all of us who are super smart, we have to realize of course that we're not that smart and that there's a teacher who's much smarter than us and that we can and, and, and that we have to actually receive that and there's things that we can't see and you know it doesn't matter if we have 2020 we can't see this. You know? And so we have to trust and receive that. And and the second reason why we have to receive by faith is that we can't actually receive from the protection from the king unless we give allegiance to the king. You know, king kings don't let you in the kingdom unless you swear allegiance to the king. That's the way it works. And that's why in the Mount of Transfiguration, when Elijah and Moses show up and Jesus is revealed in all his glory. You know, (laughs) Peter decides to build three tents there for him, and you hear the voice boom from heaven, and it says, This is my son. (laughs) Listen to him. You know, and, and the idea is that let go of everything else. You have to listen to him. Don't be smart, be obedient. Don't be wise, be receiving, humble. He's the teacher. Be humble enough to listen. He's the parent. Be a child who can actually receive the guidance of the parent. But in order to receive that, you have to be submissive to it. Right? And that's what, so it takes faith. Faith in the sense that it's things I can't see, but faith in the, in the sense that I got to trust him when it's not the way I go. And that's the fight of faith, to receive what this king has to afford. As I'm unwrapping this present of this little child who is a king, what I'm understanding is I'm learning that, wow, man, this guy can provide all the protection from the enemy. I don't have to fear anymore. He can help discern the the deception inside of me, and he can clarify my life. But in order to do this, I have to believe that he exists, and then I have to trust him with my life. And that's when I start to receive what all he has. The other question I asked my kids in the car was this. I said, so if we did have a king, would you want to be the king? Colton said, no, I wouldn't want to be the king. I said, why not? He's like, I have other things I want to do. (laughs) Sweet. Cool. I said to Evan, how about you? Would you want to be the king? And he said, no way. And I said, why? And he said, because everybody comes to you with all their problems. That's pretty good. I hope that if he's king, we come to him with all our problems. I really do. Because the thing is, is, you know, everybody then seemed to know that he was a king. They either ran away from him and were scared of him and tried to kill him, or they came and worshipped him and fell down at his feet because they realized they needed him. And our response to Christ should be just like the wise men. It should be that of worship. It takes a long, hard journey to truly find all of Christ. And they take a long, hard journey searching for Jesus, you know, following the signs that they can, trying to find him. And he will reward those who earnestly seek him. We will seek him and we will find him if we seek him with all of our hearts. And worship of him means giving him the best of what we have and making him our first love and giving him all of ourselves, which these wise men do. And it also means that we submit to him and trust him and obey him, which is what the wise men did when they heard that dream that said, don't go back to Herod. And they decided to listen to the king of kings instead of Herod the king. And that's what it takes for us to respond appropriately, to come to him with our problems. They understood he was a king. He said he was a king to Pilate. How about us? Is Jesus a historic and religious figure who we subscribe to his stuff and we acknowledge in our minds that, yeah, he's a king or whatever, but is he king? You know what I mean? Is he king? Is it his law that i choose to find freedom in or is it my brain that i think can figure out what's right and wrong in my life yeah jesus says this in the scriptures but ah you know this situation ah man this is the laws of the kingdom And am I trying to control my circumstances, listening to the messages of the material world in order to find my own satisfaction and my own security? Or am I saying the power that is in Him can take me to the darkest of places, to the least of these, to the places that are difficult and tragic, and I can engage those places instead of hauling up in my safe world. I can go with Jesus, understanding that His power is what brings me freedom and security and safety from the enemy. I trust Him. I worship him. There's this blog that I read, and it said this. This is the prayer at the end of the blog. It's awesome. It says, come King Jesus, deliver us from the the EU bureaucrats and from hypocrites on the religious right and from idiots on the religious left. Save us from Obama and from Palin and from ourselves. We know that we are not the one we are waiting for. Because if we were, there would be no hope at all. You are the one we are waiting for. Come, King Jesus. And he did in a manger. And he will again. And this time it won't be on a donkey. It'll be on a white horse who's called Faithful and True. And tattooed on his leg and written across his robes, it'll say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will rule the nations. And he will set all things right. And we will be on one side or the other. Not on both. I want him to be my king. I want him to be my king. We're reading this great set of books right now with our boys. It's called The Tales of the Kingdom, and it's an allegory, and it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful set of books, children's books. And uh, in the in the in the 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 allegory, there's there's the enchanted city that they're kind of called out of into the great park, and eventually they have to go back into the enchanted city. But there's this. They come out and they live in the great park, which is the church. It's a picture of the church. And in the church, they have this statement that they say to each other when they greet each other. One will say, to the king. And the others will respond and they'll say, to the restoration. And then God calls them to leave their park and to go back into the enchanted city. And when he does, he says, to the king. And they respond, to the restoration. As we leave this place, our place of worship, where we gather together with those who believe and submit to the King, God calls us out to go into the places, to shout it from the mountaintops, and to sing for joy that Christ is here. Christ is coming. And when we come together and join together to encourage each other and to remind each other, what we say is this. We say, to the King! And you all respond, to the restoration. To the King! Let's pray.